Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When Jesus permitted the unclean spirits to leave the garrison, he demonstrated two things. Not only his ability to control a man whom no one could subdue, but his total power over Caesar's legion. You had better believe everyone was terrified by the drowning of the swine, because when you mess with Caesar's immutable power, you undermine the stability of the country. By freeing the demon-possessed man, Jesus is threatening both their political security and their material wealth. It's no wonder they asked him to leave. But the question is, which him? Who asked whom to leave, and who asked whom to stay, and why? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 14 to 20. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 158 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Capital letters, lowercase letters. What's the big deal? I've argued with English professors. I've argued with colleagues. I'm not pointing the finger, Dr. Benton. I've argued with lots of people about capital letters. They're a big deal in the English language. Should I capitalize? Should I not capitalize? What does it mean if I capitalize? But up until probably the 4th century, they didn't use capital letters in Greek manuscripts. There are no capital letters in the Hebrew text. What's all the drama about capitalizing personal pronouns? Why is this such a big deal? Even in English, we haven't been using capital letters until about 300 years ago. Anyone who knows German knows you use a capital letter with any noun. We used to do the same thing in English. It was not a big deal. But nowadays, we use capital letters in order to show extra respect. In the translation, sometimes we'll see it as a show of identifying God. So by using a capital letter on a personal pronoun, you are potentially imposing an interpretation on the text because you're making a decision about whom the pronoun refers to. It's very interesting background for this week's episode because you notice some ambiguity in this morning's reading when you look at the original Greek that calls into question the interpretation that's being presented by those who have translated the New American Standard Bible. They're making assumptions about who's who. Jesus is about spreading the seed. I know it sounds redundant, but when one enters into reading the text and looking at these ambiguities, one has to keep these presuppositions, these narrative themes at the forefront of your mind in order to be able to understand and interpret correctly as you read. So I want everyone to remember, Jesus is about spreading the seed. When we remember that, we will be able to understand better what this text is trying to do. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. The herdsmen are, like the shepherds of Israel, responsible for their people. 
they saw Jesus plunder the swine. They saw their livelihood just drown itself. Their entire means, all of their riches, everything just drowned itself in the sea thanks to Jesus. So the herdsmen saw what had happened and ran away to report it in the city and the result was very similar actually to the result of people talking about Jesus elsewhere. The mobs came out to see. So once again someone is reporting what they saw, what they heard. They're reporting the result of Jesus's teaching and now the crowds are coming out once again to see what had happened. Now the difference between what was happening before and what's happening now is before Jesus was healing people. People got very excited, they're very happy. Now Jesus just helped drown an entire herd of swine and impoverishing this group of people as a result. People, I can't imagine, would be very happy with the report that these herdsmen bring or with Jesus because he's kind of bringing them bad news. Hey, by the way, this guy came, he fixed this guy, it was great, but then he managed to kill all my swine. Not too excited about that. These herdsmen have reported to the city and in the country, meaning everywhere. They came to Jesus, they being the crowds, and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. So they came to observe, to examine, to check out what had happened. It almost has the feel of a court scene, or of, in Leviticus, someone being brought in the temple to be examined to, to see the result. They're observing what happened, and they see that the guy was healed. They see that he's no longer bursting out of his chains and uncontrollable and abusive, and they're afraid. Why are they afraid? It doesn't make sense to a logical person. Why would they be afraid suddenly if the guy was actually healed? They have a person who has both the power to defeat the demon and to drown all these swine. This person has the power of life and death, and he just visited their town. So maybe there is a good reason why they're afraid. Maybe the fact that this guy can bring life or death, because he did both in one fell swoop. One thing that Mark makes very clear is it's the man who had the legion. That's what I think is interesting. The one who had had the legion, meaning the one who was invaded and captured and oppressed. They saw him freed. So they see the power of life and death, but do they see the power of freedom that Jesus offers? That's why they might be afraid. That's the Exodus metaphor at work. Remember, we are still in the same parable in which we were overwhelmed with Exodus imagery. The drowning of the legion, the freeing of this man that you're talking about now and its implications. And in Exodus, it's about a choice. Do you fear the power of death wielded by Pharaoh. Do you want to put your trust like the people of Israel in the wilderness who got scared in the wilderness and wanted to turn back? We were fine in Egypt. We had something to eat and everything was under control. Do you want to be like them and put your trust in Pharaoh? Better the devil you know than the devil you don't. Or do you want to be obedient to the command that the Lord gave Moses on Sinai, which is that the people would come out of Egypt be set free from one slavery and made to serve another master. They're being confronted with a choice. Do you want to stay under your current master, which is Rome, or do you want to be under the mastery of the Father of Jesus Christ? And the creator of the heavens and the earth and the one who 
has all the power of life and death in his hand, rather than Pharaoh, who has the power of death, but not the power of life. Jesus shows that he has the power of life and death. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. So it is the recounting, once again, of the story of God's victory over Pharaoh's chariots, metaphorically, of God's victory over Caesar's legion, metaphorically. The one who was on the wrong path is now being put on the right path. It was the teaching that went into this man, the teaching that drove out these demons, and it was now that he was sitting in his right mind, meaning he had the correct teaching in his mind. And this is what put him in the state that he's in now. To be very correct and very specific, or we will bungle verse 17 the way everyone bungles verse 17. To be in one's correct mind scripturally, to have been fed by the gospel, is to know who your master is. Once Jesus healed him, he was no longer subject to the authority of Caesar. That is the point. He is set free. In this sense, he's dangerous. He's dangerous to the city because if your objective is to please your master who wields the power of death, you don't want him even to catch a whiff of rebellion. It's like in The Magnificent Seven, that classic American Western based on the Seventh Samurai. Half the town didn't want to fight back against the Mexican Mafia in the Old West because if you challenge them, you're going to get in bigger trouble. It's better to just let sleeping dogs lie and bow to the flag and let them steal from you and mistreat your daughters a little bit and hopefully they'll leave you alone most of the time. That's the dynamic. But this guy went hook, line, and sinker for Jesus Christ and his teaching. And now he's a problem. And once you understand that, verse 17 makes sense. And they began to implore him to leave their region. Now, this is where we ran into trouble because in the translation we're looking at, the NASB, him is capitalized. So it, they imposed this reading that they began to implore Jesus to leave their region. However, it could just as easily and maybe even more accurately be implore the previously demon-possessed man to leave their region because the last person, the last he that we spoke about was the demon-possessed man. That's the one who we talked about in both verses 15 and 16. Jesus wasn't mentioned since the beginning of verse 15, which makes me think this could very well be the demon-possessed man. So if we read it that way, they began to implore the demon-possessed man to leave their region. Previously, they wanted Jesus to come and stay, but Jesus bore the teaching and he needed to keep going. Now they have this man who represents what happens when the teaching comes into your demon-possessed mind. Clear thinking and the freedom that comes through service and servitude to God. Slavery to God. So they implore this man who embodies that literally to leave. The one who brings the gospel to them, the one who is the gospel for them, they want him to go. Now, people typically refer to this as though it's about Jesus, and they jump into a kind of psychological interpretation about people not wanting to be healed. That's a very common reading. I don't know where it originated, but I've heard it too many times in my life. What's interesting about the ambiguity of the personal pronoun him, if you take away the capital letter and leave it open the way the Greek leaves it open, whether it's Jesus or 
the man who was healed. The point is, it's not about not wanting Jesus to heal you. It can't be. It's about fear, which is the subject in Mark. It's about fear of being associated with someone who threatens your relationship with Caesar. That's why they want him gone. So you really have to force yourself to hear these verses in context and to not make assumptions about who's who, but also not to project or impose baggage you bring from other schools, other fields of study, onto the biblical school. This text is not about your personal journey or your emotional psychological reaction to God. This text is about your fear of Caesar and Pharaoh and your president and your military and about whether you want security more than you want the cross. That's what's at stake here. And the contrast we have with the other mobs that we've seen before is very striking. When Jesus was all about life and healing, he couldn't beat him away with a stick. Jesus had to sneak away in the night. Here, when Jesus shows that there's a cost, once they see the power of death that comes along with that life, they have the exact opposite reaction as the other mobs, which is, let's get rid of it. We want to pretend like we never ever saw this. Wouldn't it have been better, Moses, if we were still in Egypt? Exactly. As he was getting into the boat. Again, there's, I don't mean to stop at the beginning of the verse, Richard, but there's that capital H again. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. Which him is him? Yeah, this is confusing because it goes back and forth. He, him, he, him, the man, Jesus. But as he was getting into the boat, capital H in our translation, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him, capital H, that he might accompany him, capital H. And he is lowercase. Now, what I'm wondering is, he says, as he was getting into the boat, was Jesus getting into the boat or was the man getting into the boat? And I want to think of the man in the boat waiting, saying, Jesus, I'm all ready to go. Just like the disciples previously, I've given up everything. I've dropped everything. I've given up my livelihood. I'm ready to follow you. And so our expectation is, if this guy has dropped everything, has given up everything so he can follow Jesus, then Jesus would say, hey, join the group. We'd love to have you. And that's exactly why the translators may have made a mistake here. Because they look at what you would expect Jesus to do, and they translate according to those criteria. But scripture is all about Jesus doing something that turns everything on its head. You can't make assumptions about interpretation based on what is sensible, humanly speaking. Right. Getting into the boat is actually a participle that should go along with whoever is imploring that person is imploring, parakali. The participle here is in the genitive, so we have a separate action. But it very much looks like it's tied to the one who's imploring. Maybe someone would disagree with that, but I think it makes sense with the grammar, and I think it also makes sense to heighten the tension that we have here in the text, because there's a strong contrast here between the demon-possessed man, the previously demon-possessed man, and the previous candidates for disciples that were giving up their nets. So he's trying to go with Jesus. He wants so badly to go with Jesus. He's already in the boat. Jesus didn't have time to say Ephthys. <laughs> Before Jesus could say immediately, he was there like Jeeves. I'm here, Lord. Now what? Now you expect Jesus to say, great, let's go for a ride. No! He says, I have to go. He doesn't say I have to go, but Jesus has to go, and he sends him back. Now why would he send him back? Let's read on. And he did not let him but he said to him, 
Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And this completely goes against what Jesus was saying in earlier chapters when we debunked the so-called messianic secret. Because Jesus doesn't care if anyone knows who he is because he's not having an identity crisis. Jesus does not want people to get off topic. In chapters 1 through 4, every time people got off topic and became amazed, they obstructed Jesus. Here, the people don't want to hear what Jesus has to offer, so there's no risk that they're going to obstruct him. And anyways, he's getting back on the boat, walking away. He planted the mustard seed. He has absolute faith it's going to produce something. He's moving away the way an action figure in an action movie walks away from a big explosion with his sunglasses in slow-mo with the camera zooming in. I'm Jesus. I came, I saw, I conquered. Now he's going to go sow more seed. Everything's under control. That's exactly what it is. It's about sowing more seed. Go home to your people and report to them. Interestingly, this report to them is the same word as used in 14 when the herdsmen ran away and reported it to the city. The herdsmen, the shepherds, were the first ones to give this message about what Jesus had done, but it's not enough. Jesus needs someone to continue. And so he found someone who was loyal to him, ready to drop everything. He says, aha, now I see that you're loyal to me, just like these other people, my other disciples. However, those disciples, they were empty. They had no teaching in them. You, you have teaching in you. Here's how I know you have teaching in you. Because God showed mercy on you. Now you need to go and share that teaching with the city. Jesus outdid Jonah because he came to the land of the foreigners and produced a disciple. And he's moving on to the next place. Think about it. Jonah was running away from his job. We never even got to the question of whether or not he produced disciples. Jesus produced a disciple and could go somewhere else. It's a very powerful example in the Gospel of Mark. And when the people saw what had happened, they were afraid because everyone was upset because he had gotten rid of their material possessions. This is the same thing with the Israelites in the wilderness. Didn't we have our three squares a day and our easy life back enslaved in, under Pharaoh? Well, not so great, probably. But now you get to be under a good law, a good teaching, a good slavery under God. Now here, the people need to understand that what this man experienced was not a curse because they lost all this livelihood, but a blessing and that this is true freedom, that Jesus is the one who brings freedom by giving them Torah under which they can be enslaved. Freedom from the Romans so that they can be enslaved under God. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. And the key point here is that this amazement is correct because it is analogous to the people's amazement at Paul's teaching, whom they had not seen but only heard in Jerusalem. And we know he's in his right mind because... As soon as Jesus said, no, you can't come with me, you have to go back in the city, what did he do? He preached. He preached. He preached to Decapolis, which is nice because it's ten cities. He went and he taught. He preached. This is what it means to be the disciple. These people in Decapolis, these foreigners, were amazed by the teaching. 
which is the goal of the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is, so far, the first disciple Jesus has, actually. The one who is previously possessed by a demon, who is now clothed and in his right mind. So, by reading this text against maybe what the translators have given us, we have to confront that idea of what it means to be a disciple, of what it means to actually follow Jesus. Jesus has to have disciples to keep spreading the seed. The disciple who can't spread the seed is useless. The one who can bring the message of God's mercy is the only one who can be useful for him. And if you as listeners want to start spreading the seed of the gospel, you have to begin by asking questions and seeking out the meaning of the gospel. And we would love to join you in that conversation. Please visit us on EphesusSchool.org. And let us know what you discovered. Let us know what your questions are. And if you don't want to talk in public in an open forum on Facebook or on the website, you can always send us a private message, and we'll make our best effort to answer you as we get to people's comments. We look forward to hearing from you. Take care. Have a great week, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.